Shut up and sit down. Welcome. Welcome back to In the Context of Empire. I am John, and I'm here joined with Matt McKenna. Matt McKenna. Thank you again. Another version here. Oh, no, same version. Brooklyn Lager. Same thing as last time, right? It's the same beer, yep. That's by, uh, what are they called over there? Brooklyn Beer Works? I don't know. Matt, Brooklyn what are you company. sipping on over there? I have a Highlight. Is that the same one? I don't think it is. I do not think so. It's an India Pale Ale. It's from Florida. Of course it is. Matt, what is today's date? Oh, why, John, it's... <laughs> September 11th Eve, September oh, yes. 10th. It is September 10th. We, you know, we purposely carved out time to make sure we had an episode ready to go for, for tomorrow. We had to have an episode out for America's Day of Remembrance. And we will be talking about that. So let's, let's talk about 9-11. But let's first start, I think where a lot of people start, they're like, oh, I can remember where I was when 9-11 happened. How old were you? 9-11, I was 16 16. I was five. But no, 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 no. John? Seven. I think September, I made this error before. You were born April of 1994? Is you that correct? You can do math better than I, yes. All right, so you were seven. That's mm. correct. I think I actually messed that up. Almost seven and a half. Podcast. But um, let's quickly chat about our own experiences because I think it's valuable to kind of get that glimpse of where we were in our lives and our kind of interpretation of the event immediately after and what that meant to us. And then we'll kind of break it down a little further and what that means for, for us now and America as a whole. Yeah, my, my story is, you know, by comparison to other people that lived through the events, pretty tame. Um, I remember hearing about the events. I was a junior in high school at the time. Uh, of course, it's the beginning of the school year, but in Northeast, we start school pretty late. You know, we don't yeah. start till usually early September and sometimes after Labor Day. So September 11th is basically like the first or second week of school. And I remember being in class. I had a class called sports medicine uh, with, a, with a trainer, like the athletic trainer for the, for the sports teams. And he taught this class. And, you know, it was an interesting class. I learned a lot in it. Uh, but I remember I had a friend in the class or a classmate. He says to me, like kind of just whispers to me, he's like, Hey, uh, don't your parents work in New York City? I'm like, yes, I worked in the Bronx. He's like, oh, they're probably going to be like late coming home from school because I'm hearing they're like shutting down the bridges and tunnels. I'm like, oh, that's weird. And I was like, why? <laughs> it's like as class starts, we're just kind of gossiping. I'm like, oh, yeah, like a plane crashed into a building. All right. Class the teacher didn't say anything. No, no. I, okay. And, you know, for all, I have no idea how much he knew. Yeah. Uh, what I do know is I went through the whole class not once reconsidering that thought. Um, in those days, your parents being home from work late was a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, next period, I remember I had math class and it's like the whole world had changed over the course of like, I forget how long our periods were, probably 45 minutes. And, uh, the teacher starts class and like, she just said, well, like in a very sober way, but not at all like emotional. It's like, well, last I heard both towers are down and you know, that seemed like a, an underwhelming way to say that, you know, and, you know, I remember the Twin Towers very well. I, I had, I'd never been in them actually, but I had seen them fairly up close. And I remember just thinking like, are we like, even at the time, like, we're really going to go on with class now? That, that must be a lot of 
people yeah. that just got killed. And then, like, I was feeling that, and then I remember sitting in front of two kids in class talking about how cool it is to watch buildings fall down. Like, they're thinking of, like, controlled demolitions. Mm-hmm. I heard them talking about, like, I remember they, they blew up the Kingdom. This is an old baseball stadium. So cool. I'm like, even then, like, and two hours into 9-11, I was thinking, man, people really don't get the severity of this. At this point, though, you knew that people had died. Like, well, I had assumed okay. that a plane, planes crashing and yeah. buildings falling down. Uh, I'm going to condense this just because sure. basically the whole day, all of my teachers went on teaching. Like, as really? a teacher now, I'm thinking, like, what a terrible way to deal with that situation. And I should mention as well, uh, just like you, John, I grew up near New York City, yeah. so... Not a small portion of students in my school in a suburb of New York City had parents who worked in New York City. Uh, and I think I heard stories of parents who had, had either uh, been in the towers and gotten out. Uh, I know a girl on my cross-country team, had, her father had, was one of the last elevators down out of wow. the towers. Uh, I didn't know anyone personally whose parents were killed or anything. I'm sure it happened. I went to a very large high school. But of course, like being that close to the event... like. Everyone was affected that in a in a very close and personal way as it was so local. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sad to say, like one of my most crushing moments out of because I was immature too, like, and, and you don't appreciate the the gravity of that kind of situation. I was on the cross country team at the time, and uh, we had this like trip to Disney World that like only the top few or the top ten people on the team were going to get to go to, and I worked so hard over the summer to get onto the top ten runners on the cross-country team who would get to go to Disney World. And uh, after 9-11, that trip was canceled. It was supposed bastard. to happen in October. You selfish And uh, yeah, I was like so selfish. Like, like I was just thinking uh, very shortly afterward, I wonder what this is going to do to my Disney World trip. <laughs> I'm just kidding, of course. But that, you know, of course, that that was one of the... For me, like, that was the greatest cost, which I'm, I'm sad to say. Uh, and of course like watching it was, was like horrifying um in all seriousness like the i remember i had study hall seventh period and they like rolled out one of those mm. um, boob tube televisions yeah, yeah. like they, they had in probably not when you were in school but oh they did yeah. yeah yeah and they had cnn on it was just crazy like yeah. to, to watch this like it felt like a movie and like like just for us and we'll get into this as americans like we don't see that kind of thing right. here uh, we're used to seeing that that's like part of our American exceptionalism uh, curriculum. It's like that thing doesn't happen here. That happens over there. And it's almost like written into the script. That doesn't happen on this side of the planet. It right. happens over there. And I remember just think, thinking like this is horrifying. And um, from there, you know, the next few weeks were very telling. And we'll, we'll get into what happened yeah. afterward. But, yeah, that, that's my experience with it. I was, you know, fortunate enough to not know anyone who uh, – died in the event but of course like being so local uh it was very much uh, an important event in the area where i grew up yeah like it's weird because we both grew up so close to the city that we you know i, I can remember when i was very little there was actually a section of route 17 that i would my parents would commute over and you can actually or could actually see the twin towers in the distance and um and obviously after that event i, I do clearly remember not seeing them and kind of like what, what happened but me being 10 years younger or so than you, I would think I was in third grade then, I think. Um, my memory's pretty bad. Just so you know, you're nine years younger than me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but similar, I mean... Wait, no. Yeah. 
You're about 10 years. I just did the math in my head. Yeah, see? We're social studies Yeah, we don't do math. Um, But yeah, like all I remember, there was no buzz in the school about it. Like I did not know about it. Uh, I think I was eating, I was like eating breakfast or something. I was in the um, cafeteria of my school and just a ton of my friends, you know, I'm sitting with my a bunch of my friends and like one by one, people started getting called down to the office and I was like, what the hell is going on? And I'm also, I'm also sitting there like, am I called down? Cause if people yeah, are, it's exciting it, when you, when you I get know, to leave school early, when, but, when you're but it was like, school. it was like for, you know, so-and-so for early dismissal. And I was like, oh, all right. And people, I know exactly. So I'm sitting there like, oh man, everyone's going. And my name was finally called. I was, you know, toward the end. But um, I just remember my mom picking me up, and I was like, "What's going on?" She was, she said something happened in the city. But again, I had like no concept of what the city even really was at that age. All I remember is going home early. I remember being in my mom's room watching the TV. Oh, so you actually remember watching? I remember watching the TV. I don't think I don't think the towers were down actually. By the time I, I don't for maybe that's You'd a false have to memory. Be well, yeah, yeah, because you would have had to be home from school really early because they went down early in the morning, like before. I want to say before ten o'clock. Yeah, then maybe not. But I, I can remember watching on TV again, having no understanding. I was like, "Oh, a plane hit a building." So what? Like, I, whatever. I'm happy to be home <laughs> and at school. And the two other things that I remember very quickly is after that. Number one, my father was showing me, I guess, on the internet, like. Or he was watching some clips of it going down, and I remember him not letting me watch it. Simply, like, not because of like the the collapse itself, but because of the graphic, like people jumping out of the windows. Oh yeah, yeah. He didn't want me to see that. And the other thing that I don't directly remember, but I get told this all the time, is I played soccer at the time, and for like weeks on end. I don't know if this is exaggerated, but at least for many days when we went to practice, there were no planes in the sky because I guess they had a halt on the planes. I don't really know, but. Definitely days. So I'm told. So I'm told. Like when we were out on practice a few days later, um, there a plane passed by. Like everyone stopped playing and like looked at this plane. Like oh wow, like that was like a symbol that like things were quote unquote over at least for us. (laughs) You know, that's a good. uh, Yeah, (laughs) at least for us is a is a good uh, way to put that. So we were talking about before you move on. Yeah, go ahead. I want to say what's even what's. Adding on to this fucked up situation is I realized you actually are only nine years younger than me. <laughs> I did the math again. Oh, you're, you're yeah. correcting yourself? I'm correcting myself right. once Brilliant. again. See, look at that. On the spot fact checking. Incredible. Um, but for me, I don't know if this is for you. For me, history started on 9-11. And for many years in my mind, that's when things started. So like, you know, I was not so... Uh, involved in politics and didn't read the news or whatever but what i did hear from the war going on in the middle east i went fuck yeah like this this should happen look at what they did to us because in my mind again history started out that day and i was very young at that time too and i don't know if you've had that experience as well but well i i think what you're saying is you're you're using the uh caveat that you were very young but i think that's really the way that most americans felt at the time that uh, this conflict started on 9-11, and thus whatever transpired afterward was not only just expected, but justified. And I think what we're going to try to get to here is that you can really make your side of of the story look really good if you choose when the starting date is. 
Yeah. And the, this is there's probably no better example than 9-11. You can really make America appear to be the victim, which it was the victim on that day. Right. America absolutely was the victim, if you cut out the events from before and afterward. Yeah. And so we want to provide context today. And I think, that's the to, name be of the clear, show. to be clear, I think there's a lot of hate that's going to come for us talking about the context of 9-11 because of how folks feel around that event, which is obviously a tragic and terrible event. But we do have to look at the context and look at what transpired before that event that resulted in that event if we ever want to change policy decisions to not ever have something like that happen again. Yeah, I hate that I even have to say that. I know, Of yeah. course, this is not a justification right. for the terrorist attack of 9-11. Uh, you know, I, I was just going through this with kids in class. I like why context is important. Right. Yeah, me too. Context neither justifies nor condemns an event, but it explains it. And, you know, if I explain to you that someone was uh, lost their job and they, and they had been cut off on employment and they were desperate... And then they robbed a convenience store. I'm not, a, I'm not justifying that person's behavior. I'm telling you that this is why that happened. Right. At the same time, like, we, there's a, an article like the, uh, John Schwartz from the Inter- Intercept wrote where he's, he tells the story of this horrible shelter bombing in, in Iraq. And it was a, the Amaria shelter bombing um, where 400 civilians killed in the Gulf War. Really one of the more egregious things the United States did in the Gulf War. And... It would be like people who are against anyone questioning September 11th and maybe pointing to like maybe there's a larger role the United States might have done to provoke this kind of behavior. That would be like Saddam Hussein and all the officials in Iraq being confused after they invaded Kuwait uh, to act as if this attack on an Iraqi city and killing all these civilians came out of nowhere. And anyone who questions like maybe... Just maybe the that invading Kuwait did play into this. No, no, no. You're you're uh, you're sympathizing with the enemy, right? Like, well, no. You, it does explain it. And of course, like that. That's kind of an abstract example. I mean, that that incident is horrible, and of course, I would not say it was justifiable. But it, you know, we don't permit any other country to like have this level of ignorance to their own behavior and the cause and effect it might have. And I think for us to grow as a country, we need to have that same level of reflection for our own behavior. And again, that's so we can move forward and, in, in theory, prevent these kinds of things from happening right. again. Yeah. So I think, and kind of the basis of, of the um, refusal to contextualize comes from the, at least in part, from po- political leaders oversimplifying um, reasons for... For, I mean, for various things, but in the case of 9-11, I can very clearly remember truly believing that we were attacked because, quote, they, quote, whoever they were, hated our freedom. And I, and I remember that very clearly, that being the embodiment of the reason, which, again, without context, without even questioning that, was, these, you know, they, whoever, again, they are, are unreasonable, immoral, and kind of deserve whatever we do to them. If you don't add any of the questioning or context, that's what you're left with. So I think we should dive into the context, like the perp- or, uh, the, some of the reasons why 9-11 happened, um, at least, you know, again, to give that context, and then we'll jump a little bit more into the larger war itself that occurred. But you want to talk a little bit about, you know, the fatwa and 
the reasons why in you know historically with us being in the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, it's really a, a story that should be told more often because it's not it's not this simple narrative that most famously George Bush described it as that they hate our freedom. Uh, there's a great quote I want you to repeat later, but Osama bin Laden himself pointed out how silly that kind of statement yeah. was. Um, but so Osama bin Laden articulated his reasons for attacking the United States very clearly. Um, so the, we should ask ourselves, why is it that Osama bin Laden, who had been an ally of the United States, at least uh, in in terms of that they, we were allied against the, the Soviet Union in the, the Soviet-Afghanistan war when the United States funded uh, jihadists like uh, bin Laden and, and the Afghan Mujahideen along with uh, help from the ISI, the Pakistani Intelligence Service, mm-hmm. and ran a huge operation in Afghanistan in, in the 80s. So why is it that Osama bin Laden turned against the United States entirely? And the stories... It's so ironic because it's the exact same reason he turned against the Soviet Union. Like it's, it's almost the exact same reason. Well, yeah, I mean, you bin, Laden's, foreign... bin Laden's uh, jihad in Afghanistan was very much motivated by the Soviet Union invading and uh, I mean, that invading and seeing that, that Muslims were in danger. And, of course, this pattern plays out later. Uh, and there's also, like, the opportunistic United States, uh, the CIA funding these groups, uh, trying to draw the Soviets into a deeper war. Right. That's a whole other episode. But how is it that this guy that was kind of an ally of the United States turned into, like, the most famous U.S. enemy ever? Well, the, the Gulf War happened in 1990, 1991, where... Saddam Hussein, also a former ally, like literally like two years earlier, had invaded Kuwait and pissed off the international community. One might ask why it didn't piss off the international community when he invaded Iran just nine years earlier. And Kuwait is, was geopolitically geo, uh, important. So he pissed off the, the world. Osama bin Laden also hated Saddam Hussein. And the Saudis... The Saudi royal family was worried after Hussein invaded Kuwait that Hussein would proceed to invade Saudi Arabia. These fears are were mostly unfounded uh, and were, were very much hyped up by U.S. intelligence services. But the fear was there. Bin Laden offered to, his services to fight off the Iraqis if they invaded Saudi Arabia. He was rebuffed. The I think it was Prince Turkey. Uh, I think it was him. I can't remember which Saudi prince. Basically told him, like, no, yeah, I don't think you're going to... This isn't Afghanistan. There's, there's not a lot of good places to hide here. We're in the desert. The, you're not, we would rather have some other power come in here and help us fight off the Iraqis. So who comes in? America, always willing to expand its footing in the, in the Middle East. This is really its first taste of really having a, like a really strong military presence. Saudi Arabia grants the United States... Uh, military bases in Saudi Arabia, a.k.a. the most holy place in Islam. Uh, This is a huge offense, not just to bin Laden, but many people. And before people think that sounds unreasonable, wasn't the Revolutionary War in the United States partially, at least partially, fought because Americans didn't like British the British troops occupying places like Boston and New York? And I think you just sent me an article recently, was it Ecuador? That, I think it was Ecuador... That, you know, when the United States wanted to build a base, I mean, current and modern day, 
build a, a base in Ecuador, Ecuador said, okay, sure, as long as we can also build a base in America. And just think about... <laughs> just never... <laughs> yeah, we just was, never think about the other way around. Yeah, I mean, that's really the whole point of this show, that we can just sum it up. I just imagined yeah. it was yeah. going the other way. That's pretty much what we do. Just imagine it the other way. But. So it, that was Rafael Correa. Mm. The, it wasn't that the U.S. wanted to build a base. It's that their lease on a base in Ecuador <laughs> was given to them by some right-wing uh, leader in Ecuador that the United States probably put into power to begin with. It was up, and he, United, Ecuador, Rafael Correa, Correa was a leftist leader, and he's like, no, you don't get to keep a base in our country. <laughs> and then they, after negotiations, he says, all right, listen, you can keep your base in Ecuador, but here's the deal. We get to have a base in Miami. Yeah. And of course, and the reaction was just as you said, like, oh, how dare he say that? That's, that's absurd. It's like, on his face, that's not absurd at all. That's tit for tat. Yeah. We're way off topic here. Yeah. So the bases. That was the bases first thing in that Saudi Arabia. Off. Yeah. Uh, and then it got worse throughout the '90s. So uh, yeah, let's get it, a timeline going because I think in so in brief, yeah. you can read more about this in my article. Oh, which look is at that plug! Going to be on in the context of Empire. dot com tomorrow about nine eleven and its lost opportunities. But the relationship gets worse throughout the '90s when Osama bin Laden sees what he perceives as. Uh, total disregard for the lives of Muslims by the United States and the Western powers at large. And he points to very specific incidents. He talks about the U.S. support for the Israeli occupation of Lebanon, which was deadly. And he, he really specifically talks about the Kana massacre, where Israel uh, bombed a, a, a civilian center in, in Lebanon, uh, yeah, we should make killing that, hundreds of people. Make that, it was Israel with the support and backing of the American. Right. And this is no secret to anyone right. in the Middle East. The weapons that Israel kills Arabs with are U.S. provided right. weapons. And the United States stands 100% behind Israel, seemingly no matter what. And that was no secret to Osama bin Laden, and it was no secret to many millions of people in the Arab world. So he points to that. He points to Israel's American-supported subjugation, apartheid, uh, uh, open-air prison in Gaza and the, ever, uh, the frequent killing of Palestinians in that area. Uh, he points to the fact that America is conducting a starvation campaign yeah. of Iraqi civilians where, depending on your number, I think he says a million civilians were killed. Those numbers vary, but most people will agree it's at least 500,000 civilians and mostly children, right. like sanctions. babies. Uh, were were killed from the sanctions that the United States was levying on Iraq for a decade. This is under Bill Clinton. Yeah. And uh, Madeleine Albright went on television and when questioned about it, she said, we think the price is worth it. Right. So these are all things that he is saying, and they're all true. He also ta- points to the fact that the United States consistently supports the secular dictators of the Arab world. He was referring most likely to Hosni B- Mubarak of, of Egypt. He was talking about the Saudi royal family. Where most, even though they run a sort of theocracy, it's, it's secular for them, and it's certainly not as theocratic as Bin Laden would have liked it. Uh, and the, everything he's saying there is true. Now he does it with like religious tones, and he, you know, there's some talk in there that the, he is undeniably anti-Semitic because he conflates Israel with Jews, um, something that Americans do as well. And this idea that uh, Israel is synonymous with being Jewish, and you know, of course. I'm half Jewish, and, and yeah. I'm more than willing to criticize Israel, and, and many Jews are. They're not the same thing. But everything Bin Laden was saying 
was true, or at least had basis in truth. And everything that he was saying are things that grievances that we would never accept another country inflicting upon us. Right. So that's the context of why he and he this was we should make this clear. This was a declaration of war that he gave in 1996 and again reiterated in a CNN interview in 1997. And it's not like, you know, it's not like the United States heeded any of his warnings. You know, we expect other people to when we we express our grievances under threat of violence to them, we expect them well, you're going to change your behavior or we're going to ha- you're going to have violence forced upon you. We didn't change our behavior for Osama bin Laden. It's, it's really a shame that that resulted in 3,000 people who had nothing to do with the grievances he had got killed. But unfortunately, that's rarely the way it works, right? Like right. Uh, you, when the United States had a grievance with J- the government of Japan, it wasn't the government of Japan that really paid the price, was it? Right. It was the people, and that's almost always the way it works. Yeah, and I think, um, kind of going back to the rationale, and I want to talk a little bit about kind of where we left off with George Bush, George Bush's claim. Hopefully that gives a little bit more context in terms of George Bush's claim that this was happening because of, you know, they hate our freedom. Yeah. We have a whole, really decades of context that we have to put into, um, into consideration when we think about why 2000, or 9-11 happened. Um, but... Even more, I, I do want to talk about the, the war at large, but I do want to talk about that uh, 2004 interview with Osama bin Laden that you referenced, where um, Osama bin Laden tackles that very claim of George Bush, who, which, again, the claim being they did this because they hate our freedom. Again, they are, is quoted, they. We'll talk about it in a minute because I think that's important. But in 2004, Osama bin Laden... Um, does an interview with Al Jazeera, and he is asked about George Bush's claim about, uh, you know, you did this because, you know, you hate America's freedom. And he retorts with basically saying, why did we not attack Sweden? (laughs) Right? He talks a little bit about Sweden. Like, Sweden is just as free, quote-unquote, free as America. Why didn't we attack Sweden? Um, And I think that gives kind of the rationale that this is not like the claim that they did this because they hate our freedom is completely baseless. It was the Americans, uh, you know, interventions in the Middle East for decades prior to the 9-11 attack. America is the mean girl. And when people (laughs) react, they say, I think everyone here is just jealous of me because I'm like the prettiest girl. (laughs) With like no introspection whatsoever. Yeah. And I want to bring up one other thing in that 2004 interview because it relates to kind of what you're talking about um, in terms of the United States role, especially with backing Israel's um, many wars in the in the region. Well, and like not just back, it's it's not just so, the back; it's the unconditional right. backing. Like it's seemingly that Israel can do nothing that the United States wouldn't withdraw support. For. Right. But I want to talk specifically about what he mentions about Lebanon. So Osama bin Laden in 2004 talks about what he saw, and you kind of described um, some of the incidents that happened in Lebanon. But Osama bin Laden in 2004 describes um, some of those things that he saw in Lebanon as the catalyst for 9-11. And um, I want to quote one paragraph in particular, but just to give you some context, you know, Osama bin Laden saw Israel and saw the American backing of you know those terrible things that happened in Lebanon. And he talks about these towers that were uh, destroyed in Lebanon. 
And this is what he says. He says, quote, And I was looking at those towers that were destroyed in Lebanon. It occurred to me that we have to punish the transgressor, transgressor sorry, with the same, and that we had to destroy the towers in America so that they taste what we tasted and they stop killing our women and children. And I think that's a really powerful quote. And I think it's also interesting that that same sentiment, I think, is what a lot of Americans felt despite, the, again, the context being completely off. A lot of Americans were like, yeah, let's go bomb them, give them a taste of what they gave us because their history started on 9-11. Right. Whereas Osama bin Laden, you know, and we'll talk more about the they in a second, saw what was happening to um, Muslims in Lebanon and other places that you were talking about. And again, with that same rationale, was like, we need to give them a taste of what they gave us. That same rationale leading to the, yeah. the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, and to be clear, and I'll keep repeating this, I don't think it's right either when America acts this right. way or when Bin Laden acts this way. Uh, but, you know, some people might be listening to this and say, well, oh, Bin Laden wasn't Lebanese. Bin Laden right. wasn't the Palestinian. Yeah. And that's what I want. And I think what you're about to touch on is that they, quote, they hate us because of our freedom. That, that they is, is very vague. But I think you're going to talk about kind of that uh, that kind of bond that Osama bin Laden felt towards those folks who were in Lebanon. Yeah, and I, I should preface this. Uh, I, I'm paraphrasing something that Scott Horton wrote, the yeah. author, in a book that John and I both read, yeah. called Fool's Aaron. Really good book about the war in Afghanistan. But the idea that we don't understand why Osama bin Laden and his followers might attack the United States in retribution for something that happened to Lebanese civilians and Palestinian civilians because he's not Lebanese or Palestinian. That's the assumption that everyone identifies around uh, uh, national lines. Uh, The modern nation state is not that that old, I should say. A lot of people around the world identify around religious lines. And for bin Laden, his identification was first and foremost as a Muslim. And that's not surprising. Throughout history... uh, Religion has played a huge role in how people identify, and and Islam itself is is from the 600 AD, right? So it's 1400 years old, as opposed to the modern nation state was only a couple of hundred years old. Yeah. So in the way, and again, I'm paraphrasing something that Scott Horton said, but I think it's a really good point. In the way that people, Americans who live as far away from New York and Washington D.C. as like Alaska and Hawaii would still see the tragedy of 9/11 and the victims of 9-11 in, in D.C. and New York and go sign up and fight in a war for those victims so far away is not that dissimilar from the way that Bin Laden and his followers would declare war in the United States for the victims who you know, were Lebanese and Palestinian and Iraqi, even though Bin Laden himself was none of those things. Right. Yeah, and... I don't know if you have anything else to say before we talk about the war kind of as a whole. We expand it to Afghanistan and Iraq because uh, that's kind of where I want to head to next. So if you have one. Yeah, just one yeah. quick thing here. It's like, and if you read my 9-11 piece, you'll see this. Just this failure, in complete failure to reflect on our own actions is not a good thing. And it's not a sign of strength in any way. Um, you know, just because Osama bin Laden, who was a vicious terrorist, and you know, I'm not going to go through the whole. I'm, I'm condemning Osama bin Laden from this point forward. I'm not saying anything else about yeah. that. I have to condemn him. 
just because your enemy points out something true about your own policy doesn't mean that you shouldn't change your policy. We expect countries to change their policy under threat of violence from us all the time. I, I want to talk yeah, about so that, actually. That's what John's going to get yeah. into in a second. So, but we expected Afghanistan to right. give up Osama bin Laden under threat of violence and change their policy. Uh, but when if, if terrorists give us an ultimatum where you need to change your policy or have violence visited upon you, that's somehow ridiculous. Yeah. Countries change their policy. You know, Spain was originally part of the occupation of Iraq. Then when the Madrid train bombings happened, they changed their policy and they, they, left, they left Iraq entirely. And they're better for it. Countries change their policy and redirect their policy when those policies are proving to be a risk to their citizens. The yeah. fact that the United States didn't do that and continues yeah. to, to violate people's rights around the world makes it more likely this kind of thing's going to happen again. So the last thing I'll say, that eventually when some aggrieved person, legitimately aggrieved person by the United States, whether it's in Venezuela for the insane sanctions, whether it's in Iran again for the sanctions, or whether it's in Yemen for basically what's genocide the United States is supporting, when they take their anger out in the United States, Unfortunately, it's not going to be on the policy planners. It's not going to be on, you know, Donald Trump or Barack Obama or, or Mike Pompeo. It's going to be, unfortunately, most of the time, those kinds of retributions are felt by regular people. John, yeah. get into the, yeah, the I, actual I, war. I have itself. one more comment I want to add and then, uh, very quickly, and then I'll get into the war That's in right. Afghanistan. No but I think we just need to, we need to just, as Americans, I think, be clear that good foreign policy is not a weakness. Because I think a lot of folks would look to Spain's, you know, pulling out of Iraq after that bombing. He's like, right. look how weak they are. We have to be clear that good foreign policy does, is not... Diplomacy. Really, diplomacy, right. Foreign diplomacy is, uh, is not a weakness. It is kind of how things should go. We should not be resorting to sanctions, bombings, war, when we could be resorting to diplomacy and good foreign policy. Right. And just the very idea that we wouldn't reevaluate our foreign policy before 9-11, which, you know, as we were saying, was destroying the lives of millions of people because the terrorists, quote-unquote terrorists, want us to do that. It's like, well, we are the enemy of a lot of people around the world, and we want them to change their policy because we're threatening them. Like, right. Like, have, have an idea that things work in both ways. Yeah. All right, so in terms of... Um, the you know the broader war first in Afghanistan. This is post nine eleven. Um, I want to talk a little bit about kind of what we're actually looking at, and again returning to this idea of Bush's. They don't like our freedom, um, and as Matt mentioned before, they is a bit complicated, right? We have uh, Matt was mentioning you know this kind of um, camaraderie with Osama bin Laden and Muslims in the area. At least that's how he felt. Um, and we, if we were to put that in our own context, kind of across state boundaries. But we also have kind of the distinction, although at least when I was young, there was no distinction between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. But um, I want to be clear with what, what the situation looks like at this point. We have a few hundred members of a radical terrorist group, Al-Qaeda, committing 9-11. Well, it, uh, 19 committed, not, like it was 19 actual Well, violations. sorry, yeah. but a few hundred members of the actual group. We have 19, most of which are from Saudi Arabia. Is it most of which? Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and like two or three Lebanese. Yeah. So when we talk about Afghanistan as a country, 
literally zero. None of them, right? You just have them operating in Afghanistan Mm -hmm. at the time. But zero Afghanis actually partook in 9-11. That's correct. So just to be clear, that is the situation, right? We have a small group of of terrorists who have struck the United States. And and we'll see in, in just a moment the decision process of the United States. But in retaliation at the end, we have massive bombings across Afghanistan. We have hundreds of thousands in the end displaced killed, and then obviously spreading that into Iraq, which we'll get into. Um, but in terms of Afghanistan, we have to make the distinction, which I don't think is, a, is well known, really, the distinction between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Because after 9-11, the United States asked for Osama bin Laden. And I think we talked a little bit about this in our last podcast, but I won't go too far into it. But asked the Taliban, who you know, was the government at the time of Afghanistan, to turn over bin Laden to the United States, to basically extradite him to the United States. And because of kind of complicated Pashtun guest rights, the Taliban were like, well, first of all, we have to you know, present evidence. But second of all, we will extradite him to a Muslim country. And again, we want, I want to flip this quickly to if the tables were turned, um, that would be like another country asking the United States to extradite some person living in the United States, which obviously, again, with no evidence. So, um, so we, we really do have to put this into context regarding, again, if we were flipping the, the roles, what this would look like. Now, let's also take a look at the uh, relationship between al-Qaeda and the Taliban. They did not like each other, and I think you quoted the Taliban about the chicken bone. If you can repeat, I don't know if you can repeat that quote from memory regarding the Taliban's position on Osama bin Laden. I can basically paraphrase it. Uh, it's Mullah Omar, uh, who is the leader of the Taliban, kind of showing his worry about what the what Al Qaeda was doing from Afghanistan in terms of plotting attacks against the West. But he's said something to the effect of. Bin Laden is like the chicken bone that is stuck in my throat that I can neither swallow nor spit out. And, and he's referring to exactly what you're saying before. It's like, I want to give him up to the West, but if I give him up, if I, or the United States at large. Right. This is before 9-11. Right, right. yeah, so, yeah. Because so, Bin Laden was already had a name for him. Like, he was already wanted. He had conducted the, the Kenya attacks. He had conducted yeah. the USS Cole bombing. He's making trouble. Like, yeah, yeah. And, of course, like, uh, what... Omar is saying that it's like, yeah, this guy's bringing major drama to my country right now, and we we have only goals within this country. So I can't give I can't give him up though because of this Pashtun culture that he's from, and the Pashtun culture guest rights, like many cultures around the world, are if you let someone into your home or in this case your country, you don't just give them up. Right. Right. In fact, you, he's he's got to have legitimacy with his own. People that right. you know. Otherwise, you, you don't stand to function as a government. Right. But of course, you know he he understands that Bin Laden is his right. his actions are putting his government under major threat from the United States. Which is why, which is even more interesting, is that the Taliban try to warn the United States, right, about the an impending attack. Yeah, this is interesting. So the foreign minister of the Taliban tried to warn the U.S. embassy, I believe, in Pakistan, that the Taliban. The, sorry, not, okay, not the Taliban. Look at you, you're doing but it. I know, I'm doing it too, and <laughs> it's a huge mistake. So ta- the Taliban 
as we mentioned, was totally distrustful of Al-Qaeda because of the aforementioned reasons. But they found out from a spy, an Uzbek spy, that Al-Qaeda was planning something. They didn't know the specifics, but they tried to warn the U.S. ambassador, the U.S. embassy in Pakistan, I believe, and they were ignored. Yeah. This is summer of 2001. Because, again, it's not... You don't have to like be a Taliban supporter to understand this. This is just common sense. Why would the Taliban want the United States to be involved in Afghanistan? Yeah. Why would they want Osama bin Laden provoking the most powerful military that's ever existed to come to their very poor country that was still ending a civil war at right. the time? Yeah. And so, again, we, we have to, despite the, the notion that they hate our freedom, quote, they... They are very complex, and if we're talking about the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, very different, extremely different. Um, And so when, you know, when the United States decided to start bombing Afghanistan, because, of course, the Taliban would not give up Osama. Actually, toward the end, they said we'd give them to any other country. Yeah, once the bombing started. Right. (laughs) They would say, you know, any other country. um, Not good enough. Apparently not good enough. And by, I think, December of 2001, the Taliban had surrendered. And yet, 20 years later. Yeah, the, and uh, a good person to read on this is Anand Gopal's No Good Men Among yeah, the Living. Yeah. And he details this uh, very well. Where he One of the best books I've read this year. You know what? I, I'll be honest. I got about three quarters of the way through, and I got a new phone. I was, I was doing the audiobook thing, and I got a new phone, and it lost my place, and I need to catch up yeah. on it. But this is like one of the best points that he makes in the book. It's like, this, this whole war didn't need to happen. Like, right. He goes through all the stuff about like how the Taliban was uncomfortable with, with Al-Qaeda to begin with. But even if you accept the premise that the war had to happen, which right. we don't, but the entire Taliban leadership had given up right. and surrendered by December and agreed to live out their days uh, in, in, as farmers... And, and pledge loyalty to the Karzai government. And even worse is Al-Qaeda was most, almost completely not in Afghanistan anymore. They had more dead. Or dead, yeah. Most moved into Pakistan. So we have a country that we're bombing, and we're bombing mainly a group that did not partake at all in 9-11, other than saying, hey, we'll extradite the person who did commit these offenses to any other country. That is the, that's the crime that the Taliban and Afghanistan, I guess, if you want to even... I don't even want to extend it to the civilians, but that's the crime that the Taliban committed. Of course with, the civilians are innocent. Well, yeah, of course. Um, but that led to, in the end, again, hundreds of thousands of people, yeah. mostly those civilians that we're talking about, either being displaced or killed or otherwise. So, yeah, and, and you talked about this last week. Like, This was not like a noble pursuit this war in afghanistan the, what did it start with with uh well it started with the united states arming and giving huge amounts of money to the northern alliance which is right. a bunch of warlords yeah and again no better than the taliban in terms of their tactics they they're just as abusive to women uh that have ter- throughout afghanistan there's an unfortunate uh tendency to uh, uh toward pe- pedophilia among some of the yeah. warlords uh, or at least well-documented pedophilia. I'm not saying it's worse there than anywhere else. Uh, extremely violent, just as uh, vindictive toward their enemies as the Taliban was. All of these groups are products of an extremely violent culture, not not naturally violent, 
forced upon by the West, but you know, a constant interference. The United States was pouring money and weapons into there since the 1980s, as we've gone through. The war was tenuous to begin with. If you wanted a government, not that you need someone to blame for 9-11, a government, but man, you would have a much easier time pinning it on Saudi Arabia right. in terms of uh, where the money came from, where this, who the actual terrorists were. But right, we're talking zero Afghanis. It's like really tenuous to to try to justify this war. Speaking of, and I don't know if we want to move on. I know we want to talk a little bit about Iraq. Talking about unjustified and kind of really, really tenuous, <laughs> if, if if at all existent um, reasons for war. Do you want to move into Iraq to to kind of sum up the entire result of nine eleven, or do you want to think we should stick a little bit? Uh, well, just one more thing on Afghanistan. So John did a good job summing it up. Like, yeah, the war didn't need to happen, but it did happen. But even after it started, they had the United States had a chance to back off. They insisted on not not accepting a Taliban surrender. A lot of them uh, move into Pakistan. They la- they later reformulate. They join a group called the Haqqani Network, and they become the major insurgency years later in Afghanistan. Just to give you an idea of how that war has gone, t- literally ten year, or nine years into the war, Obama takes power, mm. and you know he campaigned on this idea. He's, he says, "I'm not against war. I'm against dumb wars." You know, he, like his problem with the war in Iraq isn't that it's like an imperial action killing uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people. The problem was that it was stupid, right. and that he knows how to do war better. So he points to Afghanistan. That's the war we need to focus on. So when he gets into office, under pressure, I'm assuming from Petraeus or the defense secretary, uh, Robert Gates, he does what's called the surge because of this myth that the surge worked in Iraq. That's a whole other issue. Um, Long story short, it didn't. You should read uh, Danny Scherzen's The Myth of the Surge. Uh, But that's a whole other topic. But... He's convinced that the problem with Afghanistan is we haven't been sending enough troops to Afghanistan. So, you know, he has this plan. It's very well publicized. Again, even before he was elected, he was talking about it. So there are military and State Department people who are just like, no, sending 100,000 troops into Afghanistan is not going to win the Afghanistan war because the problem was not that there weren't enough troops there. The problem was that the Taliban we talked about this before, was actually a legitimate government. Like, they had legitimacy amongst a lot of the population. doesn't mean they weren't abusive, but you have to remember this country had gone through an extremely uh, violent period of time. They'd been at war since 1980, and the Taliban provided some stability. And the United States was never going to be able to impose a government upon a, a country that was fractured in terms of ethnicity was geographically extremely uh, rugged and has, for a long time, had a very difficult uh, difficult time having a central government that governs all provinces. Right. The idea that the United States was ever going to be able to, to control a government on the other side of the planet was just was absurd. And people were pointing this out. Most famously, Matthew Ho leaked. Uh, he quit the State Department and then... And then blew the whistle, like, and he, you know, basically was trying to tell Obama, "This is impossible. This war can never be won." Right. Uh, yeah. You don't have legitimacy, but Obama didn't take his advice, and they, 
they conducted the surge. Uh, they controlled some territory for a while, but it's like Vietnam, where they right. can only ever control the territory that they were on at the very moment. And of course, the Taliban, just like the National Liberation Front in Vietnam, they know that the United States isn't from here. They have to go home at some point. And where we are now is like the this is a failed war. The Taliban controls more territory today than at any point since nine eleven, uh, since two thousand one, and. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when is America going to admit that it lost this war or is it going to hold on uh, in this like imperial hubristic way, uh, wasting money and lives in, in a country that we had no business being in to begin with. Yeah, and I think like that goes to the point where like, and sometimes we talk about this, like when are we going to leave? Are we just going to stay there forever? Right. Or at what point do Afghans have the right to vote in U.S. elections? Right. Yeah, <laughs> because we're, we're occupying the country, right? And again, yeah, like we talked about the Northern Alliance and, and the kind of stability that the Taliban, despite you know how cruel the, the Taliban are, when, you know they they can do obviously very cruel things, but the stability that they brought um, and the stability that or the instability that we caused by, by trying to overthrow. But again, to be clear, we have the catalyst being 9-11 in which we have a group, the Taliban, not at all related yeah. other than the person who planned it and carried it out was in the country. Yeah. By the way, a lot of the attackers were in like Germany, right, and, yeah. and California, and yeah, the yeah. Philippines. Like, it's, it's such a tenuous justification to be at war in Afghanistan. But I think that's actually a just like I don't think a, a, a lot of Americans know that kind of backstory to it or that context, if you will. Yeah. Like I think they, you know, the common belief is like the Taliban enemy, Al Qaeda enemy, same thing, and they are responsible for nine eleven. I don't think there's that, you know, um, again added context and added um, kind of discrimination between those two groups, which causes a lot of those problems. Again, I think that. A little bit done purposely by the they hate our freedom, they being whoever. Right. I definitely think it's purposeful to, you know, you say Taliban, Al-Qaeda enough times, they, they become kind of synonymous and they're not synonymous. And, and, and I think that they has led to the kind of, um, you know, Islamophobia that, we're, that we experience oh, yeah. today and the Muslim ban that has been fairly recent. And, you know, all of those things that come with it, when you just label it as they hate our freedom, they has now become synonymous with Muslim. Yeah, and like just the the, the monolith mm-hmm. of Islam and, and of the Muslim people of the world. Like when you hear stuff... As if when it's they like say only stuff, the Middle East, right? Right, and when they, when they say stuff like Iran is a sponsor of terrorism, you know what, they don't say it because they know they'll get fact-checked, but you know what the subtext is there. And it's that Iran has something to do with 9-11 right. or... You know, because we only cared about terrorism after 9-11. Right, and, exactly. you know, never mind the fact that Iran is Al-Qaeda's enemy. They're Shiite. They're not, they're not Sunni. Iran has a lot more problems with Sunni extremism than, any, than America does, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Iran has a much bigger problem with terrorism than America does. But you know that game. They can't say directly Iran, Al-Qaeda, because it would so quickly be called on bullshit. But... That's what that game is. It's trying to lump together these different groups, different countries, different cultures, as if they're all represented by the most extreme elements of, of every society. But I, I want to. I don't know if we want to talk about Iraq because we're running out of time here. But I, I, I mean, I got time. We all can right. talk about Iraq. All right. 
But if you think about the lifespan of an event like 9-11, where we are now, 20 years later, really kind of grouping Iran, again, no association with 9-11, but trying to group Iran, the, the logic being Iran, Muslim, 9-11, right? Yeah. It really is like you'd have to go that simple. Right, you would. But again, and this is kind of a, a privilege that we have, a 9-11 happens in other countries, especially ones that we're intervening in and carrying out wars in, very often. Like we, I don't know if we talk too much about this, but you talked about this in the beginning, actually. Like when we see something like 9-11, that doesn't happen here. And so when that happens, that lifespan is now 20 years. Just think about something like 9-11, that kind of event happening in our country on a fairly regular basis, kind of like it is in other countries. And you have... A, like a lifetime of anger that, you know, that people people feel around those situations. Again, I, I don't want to bring it back to Osama bin Laden, but in terms of like his justifications, um, or at least his rationale, that is what kind of what he's saying. And again, I think it's so interesting to see that a lot of Americans are using those those same types of rationale, which I guess is just a human kind of reasoning of. Look what they, whoever they are again, look what they've done. We have to retaliate. Yeah. Um, yeah, like 9-11 enjoys this really like uh, reserved position in terms of days in which we remember. And like you said, the reason it does is because there really aren't that many days in the United States or events in the United States history the United States has suffered such great tragedy. You know, it's either 9-11 or it's Pearl Harbor. Right. And Pearl Harbor doesn't really enjoy that same uh, designation because, you know, say what you want about Pearl Harbor, it was a military attack. It was an You'd attack have to go, uh, is there even like at another event, like War of 1812? I mean, there are that... huge tragedies. Like, sure. It's the tragedy of slavery, but these are not, they're not like specific. Is there another events. attack where civilians are in Not at that level, of course not. Um yeah, you, I mean, and it, it goes back, there aren't really wars fought in the United States. Our wars are not at all fought in the United States. They're fought elsewhere. And, you know, for another country to have some of these other countries that I, I mentioned in this article that I wrote, that for a country like Laos or Cambodia or Vietnam or Iraq or, or Yemen or Syria, the, these places that the United States has inflicted, incredible amount of violence of, on, it, they would have a lot harder time narrowing down their, quote, 9-11 event. Because right. we have the privilege of these wars not really taking place in American soil. So when they do, and they are horrifying, they kill civilians, we react pretty harshly. And they, and they maintain a special place in the American collective memory. Um, so... Now we're here nearly 20 years after 9-11 and people still keep it at that in that area where it's like we can never, ever forget. And yet we kind of expect everyone else on the planet to forget the incredible amount of, of pain that, that not just in the United States, but just the, the tragedy that other countries have suffered. And, the, the, you know, I write about this in the article. If you can look at 9-11, the footage of 9-11 and be horrified as you you know as we should be but then just google shock and awe yeah. and watch cnn and a variety of other news networks kind of just watch the footage of baghdad being bombed 
And, you know, I'm going to say they were almost giddy reporting it and not see why that's fucked up and why that doesn't display an, a level of American exceptionalism, then we're not at a place where we need to be. Because 9-11 w- was an attack on, on two buildings in New York City and a building in Washington, D.C. The shock and awe campaign in Iraq was an attack on a bunch of Iraqi cities, most specifically the capital. Uh, 3,000 Americans, civilians, were killed on 9-11. I looked this up uh, in preparation for this article. 7,000 Iraqis were killed, or civilians were killed in the shock and awe campaign. Many, many more uh, soldiers. In, yeah, in the first month. In the first month of what, what any, people estimate, depends on your organization of reporting, but anywhere from 500,000 to like 2 million Iraqis were killed. The fact that we can just watch the, the shock and awe campaign, and it's, it's a city being bombed. It's a city of 7 million people, roughly the size of New York City, being bombed. As if, as if you wouldn't look at that if it was New York City and just recoil in horror. Right. And it, it's this demonstration of we really don't understand what it's like to be a country that has war on their territory. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, speaking of like shock and awe and Baghdad, I don't know if you want to get into Iraq we talked a bit about how you know, 9-11 led to the invasion of Afghanistan, again, despite people, you know, Al-Qaeda not really being in, well, I guess being in Afghanistan for that time and then fleeing right after the Taliban not being involved, um, again, other than having the, the person um, that the United States wanted in the country. Uh, do you want to talk about Iraq? I think we can talk about Iraq in, in the context of, like, what has... The United, what has the United States done since nine eleven versus what it could have done, and what? Sure. And briefly, I'll mention like what it was a unique time. We already talked about how we could have reevaluated our foreign policy. Right. We also had this moment where a very rare moment where Americans had like a global sympathy, both from enemy and ally alike, yeah. uh, being bestowed on them. Like, and you know, this was this moment where. Longtime enemies like Iran and Cuba. Cuba was sending doctors to the United States. Iran, the, Iran, even though they had been under sixty years of U.S. Uh, belligerence, and you know at that time thirty years since the Islamic Revolution, they held uh, a moment of silence, a minute-long moment of silence, with sixty thousand people in Tehran soccer stadium for the victims of nine eleven. There were candlelit vigils in the street. They, the Ayatollah condemned the attack. So did the president of Iran. Uh, Russia was the... Vladimir Putin was the first foreign leader to call George Bush after the attacks. This was a moment... Like, like you can go through ally and enemy one after the other, and they all were expressing condemnation of the attacks and sympathy. So it was a moment where a global solidarity could have been built. And imagine it had been, and we had, we had reoriented uh, global action toward our common goals yeah. uh, now the coronavirus but also denuclearization right. uh, climate change of course yeah but then what did the united states actually do well we pursued a path of bloodlust uh you know the, the invasion of iraq this was just an opportunistic thing you know the, the project for a new american century think tank had had this on the book for a long time ha- half of the people who were in the think tank ended up in the bush administration there had been talk of invading Iraq for a long time. Days after 9-11, uh, 
you had the Rumsfeld Department of Defense talking about, well, we're going to use this, we're going to invade seven countries in five years. And you should Google Wesley Clark, Wesley Clark, seven countries in five years. And he talks about how he visited, this is a general, so he's not someone who doesn't know what he's talking about. He visited the Pentagon a few days after 9-11, and he has people telling him, like, yeah, they're drawing up plans to invade Iraq, Sudan, Libya, Syria, <laughs> and right. ended up in, and, and top it all off with Iran. Um, and, of course, most of those countries they did invade. So it would be great if we took advantage of the global solidarity. Yeah. But instead, we a small but powerful group of neoconservatives dictated U.S. foreign policy to policies that they already wanted to inflict. And what else did we do? We, we started a global surveillance and more specifically right. a domestic surveillance program. We have the Patriot Act. Um, we are now known for operating a global torture program and a global assassination program. And so... Bin Laden's goal was to draw the United States into this war that would destroy the United States, that would destroy United States democracy. And it's hard to argue that he didn't do that. He wanted to bankrupt the United States. Well, we spent almost $7 trillion on these wars. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, again, I keep mentioning this if we're talking about Osama Bin Laden. Like, he reached his aim. Um, and again, in, in that 2004 uh, broadcast, he does say, he does mention, like, the Patriot Act. And again, to rebut that notion of like, you know, we did this because we hate your freedom. It's like the American government has just input one of the most tyrannical, uh, you know, pieces of legislation of the Patriot Act. Um, and, and you're claiming that freedom was the reason. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, I would agree that I think like there was a moment, and I think you kind of write about this in your article, the missed opportunity of a moment of global solidarity around this issue between lines of enemies and allies that, that could have been perhaps again, if we're talking about foreign policy and diplomacy used, um, to, to kind of change our stance, be a little bit more reflective and change our stance on, on um, how we dictate those, uh, foreign, uh, policy goals. But in terms of Iraq, so you mentioned briefly, again, as opposed to using this as an opportunity uh, to rally around that global solidarity, it was used as an opportunity to conduct war. Right. Well, they had wanted to do regime change in Iraq since the 90s. Uh, if you just just Google Project for a New American Century, but he, that's the neoconservatives. But also, uh, Clinton signed the Iraq Liberation Act in 1998. They had been hoping for a regime change in Iraq. Uh, you know, this is the Democrats as well, as I mentioned, that Joe Biden's was, was huge in the build, in the uh, rallying support for the invasion. They, they used an event that had nothing to do with Iraq, like n literally nothing to do with Iraq, other than that Open Laden used the, the deaths of Iraqi children to justify the, the, his attacks on America. Uh, they... They, the neoconservatives, the Bush administration, used this to justify a, a totally illegal, uh, pre preemptive war on a country that had never attacked the United States. Uh, they lied about it. They, they, they manufactured evidence. They, they had the Office of Special Plans, which was, which was 
mining evidence that would make their side look good to justify a cause for war. You had Dick Cheney leaking, like literally leaking to the New York Times through his uh, proxy scooter Libby. Hey, we hear that uh, there's yellow cake from Niger coming in, which Saddam will use for chemical weapons. For chemical weapons, and then Dick Cheney on Meet the Press cites the New York Times with the information that he leaked to the New York Times, and, and the media was totally culpable in this. New York Times was especially guilty. MSNBC uh, fired Phil Donahue because he was doing a, a, an anti-war show, and they felt the need to go with the pro-war crowd. It was just a march to war in a country that had not a goddamn thing to do with 9/11, and the big point of why you know we everyone knows the war in Iraq was wrong at this point. It's just a disaster, and you know at, at some point, hopefully, Americans realize the human cost that we inflicted on that country. But you know, if, if you just want to look at it selfishly, like America's reputation in the world is destroyed. If if, if it was Arabs and the Arab world that thought very little of the United States before nine eleven, the United States did a great job proving it them correct to the rest of the world after 9-11 yeah. uh, and our credibility to ever stand up against any human rights abuser or uh, international law violator has, is totally shot other than the only thing we have is the coercion factor yeah. and what I mean by that is the United States acts all uh, perturbed when Russia invades, not even invades, in, it has an incursion into Ukraine, interferes in Ukraine which I think, you know, don't violate other countries' sovereignty. That's a pretty basic principle of anti-imperialism. But the United States is no one to say anything about that. And I, I, su- I would suspect the rest of the world knows that. Because who the hell is the United States to say anything about a Russian incursion into a country right next to them, interference in a country right next to them? When the United States invaded illegally on false evidence a country on the other side of the planet and killed half a million to two million people, then proceeded to invade Libya, uh, support a proxy war in Syria, support a genocidal war in Yemen, uh, constantly threatening Iran. This is, it's been destructive to the American reputation, it's been destructive domestically, it's been destructive to our own safety because unfortunately these things blow back on us. Yeah, Yeah, I think like, Again, all of this context, if you will, is provided in the hope that we can move forward from 9-11 and forward from this, these wars with a better understanding of like, why they happened. Because if we continue to operate under, the, you know, under this baseless assumption that 9-11 started the entire thing, we will never get out of Afghanistan. We'll never get out of the Middle East. And, you know, obviously that perpetuates all of these problems that we're talking about. Um, Last words, Matt. Any last words? Yeah. Something I wrote in the article as well is, like, even if you're taking all of what John and I just said, and I think we're trying to say that this whole war is a tremendous failure and and immoral, go to thecostofwar.com, find out the exact like human and money and monetary cost, but it doesn't even work on its own terms. <laughs> like mm-hmm. Al Qaeda is much larger than it was on nine 11. As John mentioned before, there, there were hundreds of Al Qaeda mm-hmm. members. Yeah. There are 40,000 of them now. 
and they're spread across Iraq, Syria, Libya, all the and very much due to U.S. interventions. Uh, obviously, the the whole premise they didn't even it was not built on very strong principles. It's very well documented that the wars in Iraq, the war in Iraq certainly helped Al Qaeda because there was no Al Qaeda in Iraq before 9/11, and then in the instability the U.S. created. Al-Qaeda fighters came in from all around uh, the Middle East to fight Americans in Iraq. And then the intervention in Libya was directly helping Al-Qaeda, uh, whether they knew it was or not. Uh, it's no secret that the intervention in Syria was directly beneficial to Al-Qaeda. It is also no secret that the U.S. aid for Saudi Arabia, aid like direct arming and providing fuel and intelligence for Saudi Arabia, has been a huge help to Al-Qaeda in their fight against the Houthis in mm. Yemen. So it's like, it doesn't even work on its own terms. And like, obviously they don't, your government officials don't care that much about finding terrorism either, because in the last 10 years, they've conducted wars that are directly beneficial to them. Yeah. To, sum, to really sum this up again, tomorrow is a day of not only remember, we can't say remembrance, I think, but also of reflection of Again, our response to an event where we, we overthrew a government in Afghanistan that had nothing to do with 9-11, we then used baseless uh, claims and preemptively attacked Iraq, kind of with a hint of using 9-11, and we're kind of doing the same thing in Iran now. So we, we have to have that context. And so tomorrow on September 11th, obviously, we do want to remember the victims, like, obviously. But we also, and perhaps you know, we also want to reflect on our own. When I say our America's foreign policy decisions, and hopefully learn a bit from those foreign policy decisions that we we've, we've conducted in the past, so that something like nine eleven, some something so tragic, does not happen again. Right, and and so the we need to get out of that frame of mind that history started at nine eleven, because. It gives consent to, and or, or at least it gives uh, a neutrality to positions the United States government and policies United States, the United States government inflicts on other peoples around the world that allows it to continue to inflict those kinds of policies. And like you said, it makes it more likely another type of event like 9-11 will happen. And just like to point to where we are in the ridiculousness of the war on terror. There are kids who are now going to be fighting in the war on terror right. that are over 18 years old, right? So 9-11 was 2001, it's 2020, so it's 19 years ago. Uh, so now soldiers who are older, who, who are, sorry, younger than the war on terror itself are going to be fighting in the war on terror. Yeah. It, this event has been weaponized, 9-11 that is, to justify a forever war to where, like I said, People are fighting in the war that weren't even born when the events happened. And people, terrorist groups that were not around on 9-11 are now being targeted by the United States. And I mean specifically Al-Shabaab in, in Somalia yeah, yeah. was not even around in 9-11 and, and formed specifically out of U.S. actions in Somalia. So think about what we support. Think about what it means to look at 9-11 only from an American perspective. And think that, about what that means for both a domestic our own future and for a more harmonious world in the future. Uh, John, I think we yeah. should mention 
that yeah. before we go, sure. that we have some media to promote. Oh boy! So John is very modest, so I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> plug his book that he wrote. Yes, this guy wrote a fucking book. Uh, yeah. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the book, John? I'll be very brief, as as I think we've ended on a very good note with with what we need to do in terms of tomorrow and the reflection. But I did publish a book called The Teaching Mirror, Lessons Learned as a First-Year Teacher. It is a, I would say, a memoir-esque book, but it's more about applying some lessons that I myself learned through my first-year teaching for future teachers. It's not necessarily history-specific, but hopefully it'll help some future teachers navigate that first year a little bit better. And I appreciate you bringing that up because you knew I would not bring that up. Exactly, and uh, we should remind people that it is not under the name John Lancaster. It is not. No, it is under a pseudonym. There's a long, a little bit longer story that I won't get into in terms of why it's under a pseudonym. But cutting it short, I have tenure now, so I can announce it. it is under the author or the pen name Victor Stanhope. Don't ask me how I got that pen name, but uh, the Teaching Mirror. Check it out if you're interested. And I appreciate the plug, Matt. Of course, and uh, of course. Now this podcast is on iTunes, yes. so tell some friends, subscribe, write a positive review, uh, or write a negative review, and <laughs> Whatever. Uh, leave your address so we can find you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, tell your friends about it. Uh, you know We're going to be doing, hopefully, a lot more of these. I have a piece coming out tomorrow on our blog, which we're, we're trying to get more organized, but it's, uh, it's exactly about what we talked about in the podcast today. It's about some of the context and the lost opportunities of 9-11. Yes, and you can find that in, in, the, in the context of empire.com. Yep. And I promise you're not going to want to miss my article. It's, it's, oh my God, 45 pages. <laughs> At some point, John is going to have an article on there as well. And you can find our podcast, again, on iTunes, on Spotify, on Anchor. Uh, and check out my Twitter feed. It's Maddie Longruns. I don't know if you want to do that. A lot of uh, some crazy shit on that. That's pretty much where I post things. So you can be one of my followers and you can get updates for when we're launching a new show. Talking shit in John or mine apartments. Brilliant. All right. Signing off. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.